Now, um, you, if you aren't aware already, there are handouts on the way in, in the, by the sound booth. Uh, most of you probably know about that, but if you didn't get a, a handout, let Gary know. He's back there, so uh, did anyone not get one? Now, the, the, the handouts, I have to apologize about a formatting error on my part. It was that kind of week. I got the page order wrong, so I'm sorry. I hope it's clear as we go through. Uh, normally, it's supposed to be like a little booklet. It's a little off today, but I hope that isn't too confusing for anyone. Uh, let me go ahead and open our time in prayer, ask for the Lord's blessing, and then go from there. God, thank you for gathering us as your church. We thank you for uh, uniting us to our head, Jesus Christ, in salvation, uh, giving us by your spirit all of, all of Christ, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his redemption, and uh, giving us even the ability to partake of his wisdom with renewed minds and hearts. Thank you that we don't only do this to get, uh, individually, but we do it together as a corporate body. And it's always a joy and, and such an encouragement in our faith to be gathered as a people in Christ and to give expression to our unity in him by learning together, by loving one another, by giving and receiving encouragement. Um, we pray that today would be rich in those things, that as we worship you together, we would also be stimulating each other to continue on in the faith and to love and good deeds. Please use my teaching to help me to be faithful and true and Use me to equip your people to understand and love the book of Isaiah and to more closely engage all of the prophetic books you've given in the Old Testament uh, to the end that we might better know you and your salvation in Christ and live for you. Uh, please give us all alertness and wisdom as we learn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, welcome back as we continue our uh, series through these Old Testament books. Really, this series is the second half of the Old Testament, and we've looked at Psalms, uh, we've looked at some wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And now we're in Isaiah. So this represents an important transition. We're transitioning into the prophetic books, which will occupy the rest of our series. Now, uh, the prophets begin with Isaiah. In many ways, Isaiah is kind of the chief of the prophets. I'm a little biased. I love Isaiah. You've, you've seen me preach out of Isaiah if you've been here for a little while. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time, more time there than in any of the other prophetic books. And um, it really is, uh, they're, they're all God's word and they're all helpful and useful. But it really is kind of the chief, the cornerstone of the prophetic books. Uh, there were some in the early church who called it the fifth gospel because of how clearly it testifies of the coming of Christ. And um, is second, second among all Old Testament books in New Testament references. Can anyone guess... Um, what the first, can anyone, or does anyone know what the first uh, most frequently cited Old Testament book is in the New Testament? So, Psalms, yes. Um, Psalms is first, pride of place. Second is Isaiah. Very, very important books as the New Testament authors are trying to give biblical language and concepts for what's happening in the coming of Jesus and his saving work. Um, so what we're going to do, oh, before we get going, I do want to ask you, based on your own experience with Isaiah. Uh, if you've read it before, if you've encountered it before, and I know some of the women in our uh, church went through a Bible study and someone's laughing. So you're, gonna, you're, ready for, you're ready for my question here. Um, if you've interacted with the book of Isaiah, what are some difficulties? I asked this very question last week. What are some difficulties that you found about the book? And then what are some highlights? What are some things you found helpful or 
valuable about Isaiah. So uh, some of our women went through a Bible study in Isaiah recently, um, and or others, just anyone who's, who's interacted with Isaiah. Yeah, Sherry. God's wrath comes to mind. Is that a difficulty or a highlight? Both. Yes, both. Yes, that's well said. Yes. So there's a lot of judgment in Isaiah. That's a feature that you see a lot in the prophetic books. There's a lot of, of God speaking of his judgment, of his wrath, in at length, sometimes in very vivid terms. Yeah, and sometimes kind of confusing terms. How is he describing? What is he describing? Uh, yeah. What, what about other problems or benefits? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to a men's study, and mm-hmm. one of the first things he spoke about being prophetic is uh, I, I really didn't know the Bible. And mm-hmm. So when he started reading to me out of Isaiah, he said, who, who am I reading about? I said, well, that's Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so, so I think the fact that it's prophetic. Yeah. That we can see, I'm like, what? Yeah. So the prophetic nature of, uh, and you're talking especially about looking ahead to Christ, looking ahead to future fulfillment, is both part of the amazing nature of what's going on in the prophets, some of their greatest value, but also can be confusing because of the way that future things are told. Um, It's not like a video clip from the future in terms of of the way things are... um, uh, are revealed. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there, there's some there's some obscurity even in how it's anticipated in the future. Matt, is that your hand? Literal, literal versus figurative mm-hmm. struggle, which, which, which is literally interpreted, which is figurative interpreted. Yes. So <clears throat> a struggle between literal or figurative interpretation. We have imagery, um, even piggybacking on that previous point. Some of the, the future things that are being predicted. It's like what do we? What are we? to expect fulfillment to, to look like. Um, it, it's being described in certain kinds of terms, and then we might have to wrestle with what are the terms of its fulfillment going to actually look like in history. Yes, that is one of the, the big challenges of p- prophetic texts, yeah. Um, good, well, I appreciate, um, I appreciate answers. I'm sure many more uh, kind of rolling around in our heads that we could generate, but it helps us to maybe remind us or, or orient us a little bit to some of the hazards and benefits of engaging Isaiah and other prophetic books. Um, So what we're going to do today is give a brief introduction to the prophets, kind of as a body of of literature, and and talk about some of, again, some of the the features, some of the the, uh, benefits, what are they doing, what are they good for, and then some of the challenges that we have to think through and overcome um, as we deal with these prophetic books. And then we'll go into Isaiah in particular. Now, because today we're going to be in Isaiah, I'm drawing principally from that book, actually entirely from that book, in illustrating what I'm saying about the prophets in general. So we're going to start saying, what are the prophets like? And we're going to start looking at Isaiah texts. But a lot of these issues will occur in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on through the rest of the Old Testament. So any um, questions or, or, or clarity needed or comments at this point before we get into our introduction of the prophets? Introduction to the prophets. First of all, let's talk about their place in Israel's history. In one sense, we could say that prophecy begins as far back as Moses. Um, Back in in Deuteronomy uh, 18.15, Moses predicts another prophet to come like me. 
And in one sense, Moses is like one of the great prophets of, of, of the history of God's dealings with his people. A prophet in a basic sense is one who speaks God's messages to his people. And clearly Moses was that. He spoke for God to the people. He met with God in a very unique way and mediated God's word to his people. But the office of prophet as kind of a more specialized function in Israel arises during Israel's time in the land. You see, as we walk through the narrative of, of Israel's story in the Old Testament, you see Samuel arise as an important figure uh, during the, the era of the judges, and kind of he's, he's part of the transition into the era of the kings with Saul and, and David. And then um, another major moment when kind of the prophetic office emerges in prominence is um, if you read through First and Second Kings, is there one prophet that particularly, or maybe two, <laughs> they're closely related, that um, that get a lot of airtime in the books of First and Second Kings? Which, just to remind you, that's one originally one book. It's Kings. We have it split up in our in our Bible, but it was written as one book. Who's the prophet or prophets that get a lot of attention? in Kings. Samuel. Samuel's gone. He's in Sam, First and Second Samuel. Yeah. Elijah, Elijah. Oh, Elijah and then Elisha, his, his protege, right? The two, they, they're kind of hand in hand. There's a lot of parallels between their ministry. Elijah, so the king's narrative is going through all these kings, and it's going, you know, we had the kingdom divided. We're looking at the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Generally, it's going pretty badly, especially in the north. It's all bad. Idolatry, sin. And then you see this, uh, this, this figure emerge, Elijah, and the narrative really zooms in on Elijah and Elijah kind of stands as, as this, um, th- this uh, opposing force that God has raised up against the king. The king should be God's man. The king should be a representative of God's law and God's rule. But that's not happening in Israel. So God raises up Elijah as sort of this counterpart to the king to speak God's word against what's going on, the sin that's going on in the land. And that really is a, a, a pretty good picture of what the prophets are. Um, the, the prophetic books that we have in our, in our Bible, again, Isaiah through Malachi in, in the way our, our Bible's laid out, um, they're written from maybe as early as the 800s BC, potentially Joel was written that early, to about the 430s BC, uh, which is in the last one Malachi is written after the return from exile. And uh, the Lord raises up these office of, of men to speak to Israel, and they're primarily doing three things. Um, if, if you read through the prophets, they're speaking negatively a lot. Um, a lot of what they're doing is calling the nation and the rulers of the nation to account for their sins and warning them about the consequences that are coming for their sins. So that's kind of the paradigm of, again, Elijah. The Lord raises up this channel for his word to, I mean, worship has been corrupted with, with this kind of false cult that Jeroboam set up in the north, and the kings are wicked. So God's like, here's my, here's my channel for communicating my word to these corrupted institutions, and it's the prophets. So a lot of what the prophets are doing are, is bringing God's word of condemnation, God's word of correction, and God's warnings about what will happen as the consequences for sin. So um, this is, we see this a lot in, um, actually we're going to look at a few parts of Isaiah chapter 1 as sort of a picture of what a lot of the prophets are doing. Would someone be willing to read Isaiah 1 verses 2 through 4? Yeah, Matt.
forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So this is a really um, frequent kind of theme we'll see in the prophets is this this bold voice that the Lord raises up to speak against what what's happening among God's people and to call out sin and to be uh, just to be you know we have this word prophetic to speak prophetically is like to speak uh, with, with clarity with with boldness about the, what's going wrong uh, calling out sin the second thing often that you'll see is in view of this identifying of the people's sin is a call to return back to the Lord in repentance in faith in obedience. And you see this a little bit later on in Isaiah. Would someone read verses 16 to 20 of chapter 1? We're, this is all in chapter 1 we're going to look at. Uh, yeah, Terry. <clears throat> Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we have, you know, he's called out sin and now he's saying, here's what you need to do about it. Return to me. I'm offering forgiveness. I'm offering cleansing. But you need to respond with this. Uh, and it's going to be described differently in different ways, but it's essentially always a Godward response back to him in trust, in repentance from sin, in obedience. Um, and then the third big thing that's going on is prediction of future, two things, future judgment and future salvation that the Lord will bring. Um, this we see later on in Isaiah 1. So can someone read, would someone be willing to read verses 24 through 31? Uh, Matt uh, Wolf. melt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the garden that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Thank you. So um, there's this too. It's always good to think in terms of when God's talking about what he's going to do in the future. There's always two sides of it. What he's going to do redemptively and savingly for those who respond as they ought to. Uh, those who are trusting him, those who are, are repentant, and coming in judgment against those who are not. Um, it's interesting when he says in verse 26, um, no, I'm sorry, verse 27, Zion should be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Um, and he, he said, I'm sorry, verse 25, this, this, this purification language, I'll smelt you, uh, smelt away your drosses with lye and remove all your alloy. That's kind of both, right? It's in, in one sense, it's like, I will do good for you by purifying you, 
but then what if you're the, the what if you're the impurity, right? <laughs> if you're part of the impurity, it's like I'm going to remove you. Uh, it's bad news for you. So that's kind of both. Both are being pictured in that idea of purification, right? It's like this is good, and this is really bad if you're on if you're the if you're the impurity. Um, this is really you know, calling out sin, talking about the consequences of sin, and talking about his future judgment and salvation. This is the major motifs in the prophets. Uh, how does it relate to the rest of the, the biblical canon? Well, it's important to realize the relationship of the prophets with the law. The law of Moses, right, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy, this stands really as a foundation of the whole Bible and very much is in the background in the prophets. Um, the prophets are like God's prosecuting attorneys, and what they're often doing is calling out in Israel the failure of Israel to keep covenant, to keep the law. So all of the kind of condemning and all of the pointing out sin in the prophets makes sense against the backdrop of the law God has already given. They're essentially calling the attention of the people back to the law. And it's easy for us to read through the Old Testament. And um, if we were on a reading plan, you've read through the Pentateuch. And then you know, a little while later, you're in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And you have kind of have the Pentateuch somewhat fresh in mind. You could turn there and read it whenever you want. But to realize that in bad times in, in Israel, they wouldn't read the law. For long stretches of time, people would have maybe never had the law written, read to them. It was supposed to be read frequently, but when things were bad and people weren't attend, attending to God's word, ordinary people might go maybe generations where no one would hear very much or any of God's law read. So the prophets come and they're like, remember these essential foundational um, covenant commandments, covenant instructions the Lord has given, and he, he, they're calling them back to it. Um, it also complements, we have kind of the historical books, which is interesting in the kind of Hebrew way of breaking down the Bible, the books of, of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, kind of the, the historical narrative. Those are also considered prophetic books, but they're doing something different. They're, uh, they're describing the narrative. But, but it relates to that because if you read through that narrative, you read through, especially again, Samuel and Kings, um, you're reading the story of Israel in the land, and you read about these events, and you see prophets coming up in those stories. We talked about Elijah and Elisha, and there are others. But then you go read the prophets, and you read kind of God's commentary on the story. So you have the history. This is the events. This is the kings. These are their actions. This is their interaction with foreign alliances, etc. And then you go read the prophets, and you hear God through these men thundering often against what's going on in the land. It's kind of God's commentary on the history on the story. That's how it relates to those books. And it relates to the New Testament mostly by anticipating in numerous ways what the New Testament is teaching, especially among all the parts of the Old Testament, the prophets give us the clearest anticipation of Christ in the broadest sense. Christ is coming, his saving work, all that he would accomplish, uh, including, for instance, the, the new covenant and the giving of the Holy Spirit and all that. We're going to see some of that as we look at Isaiah in particular today, but it's the clearest Old Testament pointers to what's coming in the New Testament with Christ. Um, any questions or thoughts? Uh, yeah, Randy. Uh, you were reading the first two verses of chapter one, and it struck me this also is a testimony to the consistent character of God, mm-hmm. being a loving God, a God that uh, provides grace and justice at the same yes. time 
And the scripture came to my mind, I will never leave you, never even forsake you, which is mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Yes. And I see that here. Mm -hmm. Even though these people are rebellious, and they already know that he's supposed to be their God, and they're supposed to be his people, mm -hmm. he still provides grace by sending the prophet, saying, hey, change your ways, or this is going to happen. That's yeah. a loving God. That's, that's amazing to me. Yes, it is really a, a, an emblematic of the patience of God, the love and patience of God toward a wayward people to continue. I mean, we can read, these are hard words in the prophets, but it's like, isn't it merciful of God to have given them, to be saying, pleading over and over, come return to me, with these offers of, I'll make you white as snow. You know, he, he, he is holding out this offer of forgiveness and, and restoration. That, that's important. We can read the prophets and think that God is very harsh um, if we don't keep that, that broader context in view of he's being merciful to a people who have utterly failed in so many ways his covenant. He's still stretching out his hand and, and ultimately trying to induce them to return and have life. That's a good point. Um, one more note uh, about the, the genre of the prophets, kind of what, what kind of literature are the prophetic books um, and just kind of how are these books put together? They're often a compilation of one prophet's work written over the span of, of potentially decades, kind of his whole ministry and career. Um, they seem to have been compiled and edited together, probably by somebody else later. We don't really know much about that. But um, these books were accepted as canonical very early on in Israel's history. Um, and, and as kind of we should see each prophetic, most prophetic books as an anthology of kind of the, the greatest hits of Isaiah, so to speak, that God wanted preserved in Scripture for all time. Not everything he wanted his prophets to say needed to be in Scripture for all time for his people. But um, because they're sort of anthologies, the, the, the amount of structure uh, within a prophetic book can vary. But just in general, it can be a little frustrating when we really want to... Uh, let's say we really want to outline a prophetic book. If you ever try to outline in detail a, a, a prophetic book in the Bible, um, you feel like you start feeling like tinfoil hat guy. Where you're like, ah, you're like losing your mind trying to like, like, what's going on? You're you're trying to um, make sense out of what it can be very very hard to outline because it's not really necessarily designed to be used that way. Um, so I would say outlining can be helpful to an extent because outlining does give us a sense of what's going on right now. Um, what's going on at this part of the book? What should I be looking for? Outlining can be useful, but they're like the epistles. You can outline those down to like subverse level, right? Like you can outline down a very, very fine tooth because there's this very logical structure of how it's working. The prophets are not written that way. So you can outline them to very, very fine detail. Um, Again, I kind of said this with Song of Songs, but there's sort of a snapshot quality to some of what's going on where there's just, now God has this message, and now God has this message. And uh, you might drive yourself crazy trying to come up with, with uh, a very detailed outline. Um, another thing is that the prophets, uh, we've talked, Matt Boyd talked about some of the hazards of poetry. There's some prose language, but mostly poetry, and we've talked already in this series about poetic books and the two big keys. Anyone remember the two big keys for interpreting poetry in the Bible? Does anyone remember one of them? Either Hyperbole is one example of figures of speech. 
And so figures of speech is a, is a good one, uh, is an important thing. How's figurative language, m- metaphors, word pictures, hyperbole, where something is overstated for rhetorical effect. There's all kinds of kind of, uh, kind of figurative speech, but that getting a handle on how that's working is huge. The other one is parallels, right? So, so these, uh, these cola, these parts of the line are put in parallel with each other, and you have kind of the first half and the second half usually, and you have to think through, well, what's the relationship between these two? That's still happening, just like in Psalms and just like in the wisdom literature. That's usually the case in the prophets. Um, so I- imagery and parallels. Back to Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, we read earlier verses 18 to 20. Just as anyone can call out anything they notice about parallels or imagery in these three verses. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you notice anything about parallels or image, kind of imagery, figurative language there? Yeah, so there's this image of these colors, red of scarlet. What is that? What is that supposed to sort of connote? What was that? Death and life. Yeah. So there's uh, to say your sins are red. I mean, what does that sound like? It sounds like blood. It's like you have you have blood on your hands. So it's like kind of saying that. And then what's 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 the offer of what does white sound like? Purity. So he's saying you have you have guilt, you have blood on your hands, you have this red spot on you, but it can be made pure, it can be made white again like, like freshly fallen snow. That's very vivid imagery. That's the prophets love to speak that way. And you notice the parallel between those. There's a contrasting parallel. Though it's the situation, this is a situation now, red is scarlet, it can be white as snow. There's that contrasting, what it is versus what it can be, to highlight how... Um, Really, I think that, that contrasting parallel highlights God's power and his, other, like Randy said earlier, the grace of his offer. I can transform, I can restore, and I'm offering that to you. This idea, or any other, any other parallel or, or imagery that stand out? Yeah, Randy. Well, part of the verse says, you shall be eaten by the sword. That's very vivid. Yes. But also, as you think about that, God removed the human element. God's using that sword. Mm-hmm. It's going to be well, well wielded by a human. Mm-hmm. He's taken the human out of it. Yes, so um, eaten by the sword is maybe another way of putting it, and correct me if I'm, I'm not meaning to put words in your mouth, but eaten by the sword is kind of, it's like this symbolic little picture of, of, a, of a broader thing, which is there's human agents, there's events, conquest, there's God behind the human agents causing that. I think the word, I think the word for this is synecdoche, when there's one thing that's representing a bit, like one one element that's spoken, but it's supposed to represent a much larger reality, like the sword. Well, it's not literally every single person is going. Well, you can't. How do you be eaten by a sword? That's another figurative language, right? The sword's like, oh, you know, no, the sword will cut you. But that's that's a that's a symbolic of of a much broader set of events he's talking about. He's talking about a much more comprehensive sense of ruin that could come upon them but it's it's this it, the, the imagery is the sword will eat you um so yeah it, it kind of includes in it all this stuff about different agents and different events yeah 
So that's so much of what the prophets are doing. So just stopping and asking those questions. What does he mean by eaten by the sword? And of course, reading it all in context, the more you know the whole, the more the parts will make sense to you. Um, and, and that's so much of, of understanding the prophets. Um, another thing regarding what prophets are doing is that they are, uh, you may have heard this, this distinction between foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling and forthtelling. So foretelling is future prediction. This is usually when we say prophet kind of in vernacular. This is what we mean uh, when we say um, someone prophesied something. You're usually thinking about future prediction, right? When, when we joke about somebody being a prophet, like someone says, oh, so something's going to happen, and then it happens. We're like, I'm a prophet, you know? Like uh, what we mean is I predicted the future. That's kind of often what we go to when we think of prophecy, and that's often what they're doing. Um, we just read about it. If you're a fusion rebel, this future thing will happen. That's a future prediction. It's conditional. Um, we talked about how Christ is anticipated. There's future prediction that's hundreds of years away. But foretelling is actually more of what the prophets are doing, and that is declaring God's authoritative voice on the present state of affairs. So God's saying, let me tell you what's happening. It's not future prediction. It's God's voice, God's, God's perspective, authoritatively delivered through the prophet. Here is what is happening. And we heard that. Earlier on in Isaiah, talking about, oh, this sinful nation of people laden with iniquity. That's not future. That's this is what's happening right now. Let me give you God's perspective on you. That's often what this foretelling is. Um, and again, actually, I think what people might find surprising, especially given how we use the word prophecy, is that when you, when you open up the prophetic books, they spend most of their time doing foretelling. There is a, a, a good amount of foretelling as well, but they're usually interpreting. Again, they're God's prosecuting attorneys saying, let me tell you what's happening in view of God and his law and his covenant and so, so forth. One final element to understand with regard to the prophets, and I'm going to turn to Isaiah 42 for this, is prophetic time. Time doesn't always, because it's poetic and because of the nature of future prediction, time doesn't always, uh, it's not always what it appears initially. The prophets will, will declare things to come in a flat way where there's a number of things that, that are all kind of smooshed together. And when you read it, it kind of sounds like it's all going to happen at once. But then when it comes to actually happen, what we find is that it doesn't always happen at once. That um, uh, Some people have used the illustration of when you see a mountain range from a distance, it looks 2D and you just see this silhouette of a mountain range. And you think it's all the same distance. It looks potentially like you might think it's all the same distance from you. But when you get to the mountain range, you find it's a bunch of mountains that are spaced out. Some of them are a lot closer than others. But you can't tell from the distance. And so, for instance, uh, this is a, a, a prophetic, uh, this is a prediction of Christ, the, the, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, this is, a, this is Christ. This is the servant of the Lord. And um, I would argue that verses 1 through 3 are all true of his first uh, coming, his first advent. Um, Matthew chapter 12 quotes 
verse 3 of this text to describe Jesus' ministry, that he doesn't make a big scene. He doesn't uh, try to gather a lot of attention to himself. Um, uh, 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 verse 2, right? He's not crying aloud, lifting his voice in the street, and he's, he's gentle and merciful toward the, the faintly burning wick. That's true of his first coming, but then if you look at verse 4, he will establish justice in the earth and all the coastlines, all those far-flung lands in the world are waiting for his law, his teaching, his instruction. And that is not fulfilled in his first coming. That's, I would say, progressively being fulfilled now in the Great Commission and to be fulfilled uh, more fully in his second coming. So you can see that what maybe looked like one, it looks like it's sort of this one guy will appear and just do all this at once. In the, in, in the actual event, turns out to be spread out differently. So we really use the... New Testament as a guide in understanding how the Old Testament texts are being fulfilled. Any comments or questions about those issues with genre, prophecy, the, the poetry, the prophetic time, any of those issues that we've touched on? Yeah, Stacey. I just have a quick question of clarification, and I'm sorry if you did already clarify this, but forthcoming, how is that different than instruction, or is it because of who is giving it? Like, is it because God has higher knowledge and therefore that's forthcoming? Or you mean the, the forthtelling? Yes. Or, yes. What's the difference between that and what else? Um, instruction or just... It is instruction. I would say it's a kind of instruction. There's different kinds of instruction. Um, do you mean, what's the difference between a, a prophet doing that and somebody else doing that? Well, I guess my question is, are you worth telling now? Oh. <laughs> is that, is, yeah. What is the difference? I guess I missed it. Yeah, there have, yeah, it's tricky. There have been, in church history, yeah, there's, there is, like the Puritans would call what I'm doing, prophesying in that sense. Um, I think we, we don't use that language the same way because I think we're nervous about sounding like, because I don't think they were not claiming that, say, what I'm doing and prophesying, they would not claim that I have the kind of authority that the prophets, I can say, my, you know, thus says the Lord, and I'm giving this like fresh, authoritative word from God. But they would, I think, because any teaching and preaching is a kind of foretelling, based on the authority of the already given words, that you could say in a limited kind of sense, it is, it is prophesying. Yes. Yeah. Good question. Um, they're not they're but they're not just interpreting prior texts. They're they're they are doing that, but they're doing it authoritatively and kind of there's there's newness to what they're saying as well. Yeah. Good question. Um, let's talk about Isaiah. Uh, move into Isaiah itself and talk very briefly about its its writing. Uh, if you look at at the very first verse, often the books will tell you the most about about themselves in terms of how they're written, when, by who. In the very first verse, so. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this gives us the prophet, uh, a little bit about his, his ancestry, where he is, who he's talking to, and when. That's a lot in one verse. Uh, the reigns of these kings, there are some clues in Isaiah that he made it a little bit past the reign of Hezekiah into the reign of Manasseh. So... Probably between about the years 740 and 680 B.C., which is incredible. That's 60 years um, that, that, that Isaiah is active and prophesying. It's a compilation over a long time. One important kind of benchmark in Isaiah, and we're going to talk about this as a big dividing point, is chapter 40, from 39 to 40. 
chapter 40 seems like everything um, happening from 40 on happens after he has predicted Hezekiah's, uh, he has predicted the exile during Hezekiah's reign. That's what happens in chapter 39. Hezekiah shows the Babylonians all their great stuff. Isaiah says, what did you do? And he tells them what he did. He said, oh, well, that stuff will, they're going to come and they're going to sack Jerusalem. They're going to take you into exile. Not in your generation, but in a future generation. That's the backdrop for everything following in chapters 40 to 66. So probably all that was given after this, this kind of final prediction of exile during Hezekiah's reign. Beyond that, there, is, there are some events in the background as you go through, especially the, the early chapters. Um, you kind of see Isaiah's prophecies being given against the backdrop of kind of geopolitical events, alliances and invasions and things like that with regard to, say, King Ahaz. So, so some of that, uh, it's not just all this timeless messages from God. Often it's related to things going on in the nation at, at that time. It's God's foretelling about that. So audience, that's in verse 1 as well. Uh, it's concerning um, Judah and Jerusalem in the days of these kings. So you'll recall that the kingdom has been divided ever since Rehoboam's time into the north, which is called Israel, the south, which is Judah. Jerusalem is in which of those two sides? Which one? Which one's in Jerusalem? Was Jerusalem in? The south, right. In verse 1, it's Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the, the territory, the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom is more important from the standpoint of the biblical storyline because that's the Davidic line. That's the, where God has already pointed to. I'm going to give an eternal reign in the line of David. So this is kind of the thread that the story is going through is the southern kingdom. Um, this is Isaiah's context and audience. There's a lot about the Davidic line in Isaiah. That's an important thing. He interacts with Israel, with Judah's kings in view of, who, uh, of that promise and that covenant. Um, regarding the author, it seems pretty case closed. Isaiah, um, that was enough for almost everybody in church history until a, a, a little over 100 years ago. Um, in the 19th century, um, more kind of higher critical methods, uh, treating the Bible like any other book that's subject to historical scrutiny, etc. Unbelieving methods of interpretation took hold. And there was a German scholar who theorized that it was written by three Isaiahs. Um, the, the first, or the, the original, the real Isaiah, wrote chapters 1 through 39 before the exile. And then there was a second Isaiah, in quotes, who wrote chapters 40 to 55, and then a third Isaiah who wrote chapters 55 to, 56 to 66, even later. Uh, some variation of that view of multiple Isaiahs is still dominant among uh, critical scholars. So let's say, if you're ever in a classroom at UC Davis in religious studies that ever has anything to do with Isaiah, they, were, they will assume something like this. Like, this is sort of considered to be, uh, among critical scholars, the consensus. Um, but it's motivated by some really shaky assumptions from the standpoint of faith, from the standpoint of seeing the Bible as God's word. A lot of what drove this is that there are some crazy specific prophecies in that latter portion of Isaiah that, from their standpoint, could not have possibly been written before the exile. For instance, in chapter 44, verse 28, and chapter 45, verse 1, Cyrus is named as the deliverer, as the king who will release them from exile, supposedly, I think, 150 years or so before Cyrus did this, before he was even born. 
And so um, if you approach the Bible with a, a naturalistic assumption that it's just a book written by old, you know, ancient, ancient tribesmen uh, from, from Israel, ancient shepherds uh, and nomads and so on, and, and you have this kind of um, condescending view of the text, it's just another ancient human document, and you see somebody naming a supposedly figure that's going to come 150 years in the future, you say, well, well, this part then must have been written after Cyrus. But, of course, the church has always said, well, no, this is the word of God. God can do that. Not only is it something that we just say, well, God can do that. He can predict the future. But if, and if you've heard me preaching in these parts of Isaiah, actually fairly recently in these parts of Isaiah, we've heard uh, from the pulpit where this is the whole point of what God's saying is because I can call my shot. I can tell you it'll be Cyrus even now. This is how I show that I'm the only God. This is how I show that all those false gods are not true gods. But I'm the one that actually controls history. I'm the sovereign Lord of history. So not only is it, it's not incidental to what Isaiah is saying, it's the very point that the, the text is making, that God can do this. Um, it would, to, to deny future prophetic prediction to Isaiah would be to turn the whole book into a complete fraud, essentially. You can't take it and say, well, there was this, these things that were fudged, but well, then the whole thing's a lie. And as the people of God, we, we would have no business uh, reading it as, as scripture. Um, but if we start with the believing posture, there's no reason at all to doubt single authorship. There's really no compelling, and even people have studied kind of stylistic and vocabulary and things like that. There's really no compelling reason other than an unbelieving presupposition that would cause you to say this must have been written by different hands. Um, so anyway, that's kind of interesting that uh, it's like so many things. It's, it's the posture of belief versus unbelief that you bring to it. Well, it's so profoundly um, determine what you see. So, but there's no problem at all with saying it's one Isaiah. That's what's always been believed by God's people. That's what the book itself claims. Um, the structure of Isaiah, as I said before, the big division to know about is between ver- chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Uh, the first section focuses on God as the ruler of all the world. Essentially, God's the ruler of the world, and he's calling his people to trust him. That's the big thing going on in chapters 1 through 39. The second section, chapters 40 to 66, is the people have failed, <laughs> and, and exile has been predicted. And so God shows himself as the redeemer who will save his people and transform the world in the future. So he's looking kind of at the, 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 that latter part of Isaiah, he's looking beyond the exile, and he's saying, I'm the redeemer of Israel and really the, the savior of the whole world, as we'll, we'll end up seeing. Um, the first section, chapters 1 through 39, anticipates Christ as a messianic king. So there's a lot of David here. There's a lot of him being kind of in the line of David. Chapter 9, this is, we read this at Christmas time a lot, um, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the throne of David, this one who's coming, this child to be born, this is a major theme in these first chapters. Moving over to chapters 40 to 55, I read the first of four texts that are about the suffering servant. So the big deal in chapters 40 to 55 is Christ as the servant of the Lord. 
Um, I think I have later on in your in your handout those four texts. They're called. They've been called the servant songs. Um, there there are these these uh, prophecies about Christ as the servant who who ends up not in, in not all of them is he suffering, but he's always called the servant. And by the end, uh, chapter fifty three is the big one where he suffers. It's it's a picture of his atoning death. And then in chapters fifty six to sixty six. Christ is pictured as a conquering warrior, an anointed conqueror. Um, and for instance, I'll just read a little bit of 63, 1 to 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments? What, again, crimson garments, what does that sound like? It sounds like blood. Okay, he's, he's coming from a battlefield. Uh, from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Um, not all of this section is so wrathful, but there is. I mean, there's. it's like, wow, he's, he's a conqueror. I mean, he's going to... Um, come in judgment, but then there's also wonderful, in this section, wonderful pictures of him as a savior as well, as one who comes to bring victory to God's people. Again, there's that both sides to God's future work through this, this agent, this conqueror who is Christ. Um, so those are, those are the major sections of Isaiah. Again, the big division is from chapters 39 to 40. Not that it separates between different authors, but it is a, a different topic and kind of different thing that prophets do. Any questions or thoughts about the structure of Isaiah? Um, yeah, Patty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People have pointed out, yeah, that the thirty-nine chapters in the first section. Yeah, yeah, and the chapters are not part of the original text. It is kind of, I don't know, providential uh, coincidence, but it is interesting that the first 30, yeah, there are 39 chapters in the first part and 27 in the latter part, and people pointed out that so many books are in the Old Testament and the New, um, uh, respectively. So it is, it is, that's kind of interesting, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, there is more focus on... Um, on on now and on God as the ruler and there's more there is more kind of wrath predicted in the first part and there is more kind of hope the tenor is more of hope even though there is wrath too in the second part let's talk about major themes of Isaiah um, if I could if I could instill in your mind and heart one big theme verse for understanding what this book is about it's chapter 41 verse 14 this comes up Variations has come up several places I have there in your handout. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. A slightly expanded version is 54, verse 5. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So you have these, these two sides. You have he is the God of the whole earth. He is your Maker. So this idea that he's the Creator He's the sovereign Lord over all the nations. Um, he's the Holy One. There's these things about who he is in himself and his relationship to all. And then the pivot to, and he's your redeemer. And he's your savior. 
if I could say maybe that's another way of putting it. The first 39 chapters are mostly saying, this is the Holy One. And then chapters 40 to 66 are saying, and he's your Redeemer. Um, and really the two sides of that and keeping them together is what makes, is, is so much of what Isaiah is doing and what makes its message so powerful. Um, Isaiah's call narrative, you may be familiar in chapter 6 with Isaiah. This is the scene where he's, uh, he's commissioned for his prophetic work. And it really goes through these, these movements. What does he first see? He sees the Lord, the Lord uh, a figure seated on the throne. It's the Lord. He sees the, the angels on both sides that are just so awesome. Their, their voices fill the temple. And he's in awe. And the first thing he does, what does he say when he sees this vision? The angels are saying, holy, 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 about the Lord that they, that they are surrounding. They say, holy, holy, holy. So that's the message for us. The Lord is holy. What is, what is Isaiah's response to that scene? What does he think about himself? Yeah. Yes, he falls down. He says, woe is me, uh, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It doesn't say he fell down, but I, I think it's easy to envision that he, <laughs> he may have lost his footing there. And say, I mean, he's undone. Woe is me, I'm undone. So he sees his own sinfulness. He sees what it means for him that God is holy. And then what does God do, though, is he sends an angel with, with a burning coal from the altar, and he touches his mouth, and he takes away his guilt, he atones for his sin. And then he commissions Isaiah to be his prophet. And so this idea of this Holy One, that to see him is to be undone with the right sense of our sin, and yet he's the very one who comes with atoning, uh, with, with, with atonement, with a, with a burning, cleansing fire of atonement that, that purifies and covers guilt, which of course anticipates the coming work of Christ. But that idea of the Holy One is your Redeemer. That's what Isaiah experienced in his own call. And that's so much the message of the whole book. Um, so yeah, these two, we'll, we kind of look at these in turn. The first major theme is God is the Holy One. Um, part of what this means is that he is the exclusive Lord over history. And um, again, this is a theme that if, you know, if you've been with us in the ser- sermons in, in Isaiah I've done, this has been major in, in these kind of chapter, the 40s. Uh, this is big. Would someone be willing to read 44 verses 6 through 8? So much of what this book is doing is the Lord saying, I am the only God. I'm the only Lord of history. I'm the creator. I'm the one who guides everything. And so his people should trust him alone. And so all the nations ultimately should look to him alone. Um, In view of who he is, he calls out sin. We we looked at this in chapter 1. There's a lot of places where he's calling out sin. He's identifying, foretelling the sin of of Judah. Um, He is judging his people 
Um, he's, and that's what the exile is ultimately. is like, I'm going to bring judgment because of this, these patterns of sin. And he also will be the judge of the nations. Chapters 13 through 21 go through this litany of go, going through all these neighboring nations and talking about how God's going to judge each one of them. And it culminates, it's actually, this whole cycle goes from chapters 13 through 24 with some breaks. But chapter 24 is like, all right, I'm going to judge the whole world. <laughs> so it's like nation after nation, including Judah, Israel, and then I'm going to judge the whole world. That's a lot of what's going on there. Um, again, chapter 34, he talks about judging the whole world. So because he's the Holy One, he is, uh, he is transcendent. He's, he's this blazing, pure God who's, who's uh, transcendent over all of his creation and, and cannot dwell with sin. Um, which is, again, why Isaiah was undone when he saw the Holy One in chapter 6. Well, this Holy One is issuing his judgment against the nations. Um, so that's God as the Holy One. But we also have God as the Redeemer. Um, he's the Redeemer through the servant's atoning work. This takes us to uh, uh, chapter 52, 13 through 53, 12. And especially the, the real heart of that is, and this is the, the very famous, we, we, we turn here often, uh, it's the clearest Old Testament picture of Christ's atoning work. But verses, uh, oh, I think I, yeah, yeah, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the, the real heart of God's saving work. This is why God is a redeemer, is because someone, the servant would come and take the guilt and take the punishment for others. Um, this means salvation for Israel and the nations. And you have this tiered thing about salvation. It's first for Israel, it's first for the covenant people, but then it reaches to all the nations. One of the other servant songs is chapter 49, where this, this uh, order is so clear. This is, again, the servant talking. This is Christ talking uh, prophetically. It says, And now the Lord says, He who, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that means Israel, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So as he commissioned me, he gave me this, this role of saving Israel, but I'm also here. That's too small for me. I'm such a, such a, a worthy savior that really the task worthy of, of me is all the nations to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul quotes from this text in Acts 13 when he goes to preach to the Gentiles. It's very much the, uh, the Old Testament impetus for the, the, the Great Commission going beyond Israel to the ends of the earth. Um, we have uh, pic pictures of spiritual renewal that are beautiful. I, I love these pictures of what it, when God saves. These, the, often he uses uh, imagery of vegetation and water in the desert, and he's talking often about his spirit being an agent of that renewal. Uh, the giver of life we talked about last year in our series on the Holy Spirit, he's the giver of life. And often he's promised in these, these kinds of terms, uh, like in chapter 32. I won't read it all, but 32, 15 to 20. The Spirit, so he talks about how basically how deserted 
the place is until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And it's this picture of righteousness, peace, uh, secure dwellings and rest in this picture. Everything is good. Everything is, uh, is, is peace and security when the spirit comes. That's, that's a picture of what his redemption will yield. Um, and we won't turn there, but there's, there's um, several texts that use kind of Exodus imagery. This is another thing the prophets are so good at doing is using their poetic images. They can invoke things in the past that remind you of all these major events that God has done. So they'll use kind of Exodus-type language to talk about God's future work and saying it's almost like it will be like a new Exodus. What was the Exodus? God delivered his people from bondage and from death into a place of life and fellowship with him. And that will be what it's like when he returns them from exile, which isn't just about coming back to the land from exile. It's about this, this spiritual problem of sin. He'll, there's going to be an even greater return from exile that he brings about in Christ in the future. So new exodus kind of imagery. Uh, what are the effects of redemption? Well, part of the, in view of God as the Savior, the Holy One who redeems, there is an immediate call to faith. Uh, among the contemporary audience. There are several places where it's like, so this is what you ought to do. You ought to believe. I love this. Uh, these two verses in chapter 30 where this happens. Verse 15, he says, um, In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That's his call to Israel. Even as he's saying these hard words to them, he's saying, return and rest. This is essentially a call to faith, salvation through faith. Come and rest. Turn away from your, your rebellion against me. Come and rest in me, and that's your salvation. Uh, but sadly, it says, you were, not, you were unwilling. Verse 18, similarly, he says, the Lord, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So the call to faith just thunders uh, so beautifully throughout this book. Uh, and, and blessed are all those who wait on him, who trust him. Uh, there are texts about everyone seeing the supremacy of Yahweh, uh, the Lord. And this, uh, like in 48, we won't turn there, sorry, 43 verses 8 to 13, he talks about Israel being his witnesses before all the nations. Like, you're my witnesses who have been up close to see my work, and you're going to be the ones that, that can tell everyone how worthy I am of their worship and their devotion. Uh, that's what that imagery of, sort of like a courtroom. I'm calling all the nations to a courtroom scene, and you're my witnesses to tell them that I am the only God, that I'm worthy of, of their praise as well. And then there's a lot of, uh, of, of new creation imagery. I talked about new exodus imagery, using exodus terms and pictures about the future. There's also a lot of kind of new creation imagery. Uh, often there's pictures of, Again, this sort of abundant, uh, flourishing vegetation in the wilderness, these kinds of things, very Edenic. That's intentional. Um, this new creation is sort of a, a place where um, salvation kind of leads to this new creation result. It's often tied to the spirit. The spirit is God's agent of new creation in the end times. So these, these threads all weave together in these pictures of new creation. Um, the last kind of theme to look at is is um, Christology. How is Christ depicted? Now, I told you already that the first 39 chapters really focus on the, the Davidic Messiah, the one in the line of David who is promised. You'll recall the, the covenant to David that he would have an eternal reign, his sons. 
Another part of the backdrop of that, in that section, there's a lot of focus on the failure of Judah's kings, the, the sons of David who are on the throne at that point. Um, in chapter 7, 10 to 13, Ahaz the king, his failures come to the fore, and you start seeing he doesn't trust the Lord. He is faced with a crisis. Um, Assyria is threatening, and he's going, what are we going to do? And uh, Isaiah calls him to trust the Lord, and he doesn't. And so we say, ah, the, the Davidic king has failed to trust the Lord. Later on in chapter 39, it's similar with Hezekiah. The Davidic king fails to trust the Lord. He um, opens, opens up, rolls out the red carpet for the Babylonians. He seems to think that he's going to find safety in an alliance with them. So much of what's going on in these 39 chapters is, the backdrop is the temptation to seek refuge in political alliances with other nations. And the, the message is, no, the Lord is the king. You trust him alone, and he'll save you. So the, the Davidic kings are failing in Isaiah, and that's what leads to this picture of there's a greater David to come. Um, then in, in chapter, chapters 40 to 55, we talked about the four servant songs. We already looked at, at three of them, actually, 42, 49, and, and 53. Um, and then these anointed conqueror texts in chapters 56 through 66. Um, another, I, I will read, um, actually, I'll, I'll see, does anyone want to read 61 verses 1 to 3? This is one that Jesus reads during his ministry in Luke chapter 4, um, Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. Yeah, thank you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Thank you. Um, and it goes on, but this, this picture of this is the anointed one saying, the Lord has given me his spirit to do this, and this is why I've come. Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah um, in, in the beginning of his ministry, and he reads through the beginning of verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops there. This is another example of the prophets are smushing together things that so what he doesn't go on to read is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Not that he's trying to edit that out. It's that he's talking about why he's here now, the first coming. And so he's, he's here as the, the, the savior. He's here to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives. And he stops at the day of vengeance of our God. Why? When's that coming? The second coming. So there's a lot of time in between those lines, right? And he stops there because that's not why he's here yet in Luke 4 uh, when he's in the, in the Nazareth synagogue reading this. That time is yet to come. But, but again, this is, a, but this is a picture of this figure. He is all these things. He's here for all these things. But he doesn't come for them all at once. Um, so this is a picture of Christ we get. Again, the New Testament dips uh, liberally into Isaiah t- to fill out our, our understanding of who Jesus came, who he is, what he came to do and to be. Um, any, I know we, we ran through these kind of quickly. Any comments or questions about these themes? The, the Lord as the Holy One, the Lord as the Redeemer, 
the effects of his saving work and, and the pictures of Christ that we get. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, judgment, yeah, mercy triumphs over judgment, you could almost say, as James says, that God, often there's this pattern of there's, there is a judgment for sin and there's an immediate hope given in mercy. The, the, in the garden, Jesus, God appears and, and gives his verdict on the first sin, the, 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 the fall in the garden, and he's already predicting Christ there in, in Genesis 3. And that's so, I mean, that's the picture of what's going on with the exile. It's like, fine, you guys have finally blown it, it's going to exile. And then you have this explosion of hope. The Redeemer, the Holy One is your Redeemer. So to go from the, the final, like, that's it, it's over, you're going to exile, it's decided. And then chapter 40 begins with, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Is God is so quick to say, but I want you to know that the, the loudest note here is mercy. The loudest note here for all who believe is hope. Because my purpose is not only for this nation in time, but ultimately it sweeps out to include the whole world and the whole cosmos um, in a new heaven and a new earth. That, by the way, that terminology comes from Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. It's it's picked up later on in Revelation. So yeah, I mean it's it's beautiful. Just the picture of the, the the overall shape of what God's doing here, in saying yes, I'm the Holy One, and that means something with regard to your sin. But I'm I'm the Redeemer as well. Um, and He's holy not only in wrath but in mercy as well. He's transcendent and incomparable, and other. That's what holy means. Not only in justice but in mercy and in kindness and in, in salvation. That's so much. Yeah, the mean God of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, yeah, that, that, that trope doesn't survive very long reading through Isaiah. Um, yeah, Gary. With, with themes and then being so interested in creation science like I was and still am, and I used to give a presentation about how important creation is, and I use Isaiah, and I call it the fabulous 40s, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I would have people read Isaiah and in uh, some of the creation verses, and so a way that, maybe it would be illumination, but maybe it is a way to encourage some of you to get into your Bible more mm-hmm. to read, is sometimes kind of read it like, you know, maybe what you can feel... For instance, now, I would have people read, uh, you know, uh, like in verse 44, 21, and they'd read, I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will be forgotten by me. Well, that's a good reading. But you know how I read it? I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And sometimes, and so when we read, like in verse 24 of, uh, of chapter 44, and then there are others in there, 
God is actually, when you read it in a way that may be called illumination, you can read it like this, I the Lord am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. That's a good reading. But when you read all these creation verses that are in the 40s, 40 through all the way up to 50, you'll find creation verses. He's bragging. He's not, but he's not bragging. He's telling it because it's not right, because he did it. Mm -hmm. He said, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. Man, that, that makes me just, mm, that's the Lord stretching out the heavens by myself. He created it. Creation is important, people. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of churches stuff, but God brags about it. Mm -hmm. A lot of churches say, well, you know, it's minor stuff. Mm -hmm. This is our creator, God. Yeah. This is the God who... Who, and then we read the verse, but when you when you read it with enthusiasm, like we read the verse here in 44, 6 through 8, and thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. I think it's more fun. I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God beside me, and who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare. And so I'd like to encourage you when you read you know, just okay. You can read it nice, but get get pumped up when you read the Bible. Preach it to yourself. Find these yeah. things, and, and and I don't know. That's just me, but yeah. I I just want to encourage you. Isaiah is a great book to it read, is. and all those things that we read, these things. I did it. I did it. I do this. I can do this. I can do that. Come on, people. Come on. Yeah. Let's go. It's just like a coach. Yeah. Come on, you guys. Well, it's, it's true so, that we can anyway. view, we can view creation as as like this arcane point of like oh why does it really matter god it really matters to say i'm the creator who rules all things i'm the one to hope in don't turn away from your false gods and hope in me i control all history and i can save you and i, I think maybe one really good way to put what god is doing there is what he says i already read it in thirty eighteen. he exalts himself to show mercy to you he's trying to show how high and how great he is probably more than any other part of scripture if you want to know who God is, I, probably Isaiah, you could you know better than these 40s of Isaiah. And the point of it isn't just, uh, just for facts. The point is that we know who he is, and in him we find life and hope. He says he's exalting himself to show mercy. So good word, Gary. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I'd love to interact with you. If you have any questions or comments um, about Isaiah or anything that we've covered uh, outside of class, but let, let's go ahead and, and pray and close this. God, you are indeed the Holy One, the Creator. You have made us and you do not forget us, those of us who have fled for refuge to Christ, the Redeemer. We thank you for all that you've revealed in Isaiah about your character and your salvation. God, this is an amazing book, and we pray that we would all uh, be stimulated and, and have a hunger in our hearts to like Gary said, to read it with kind of leaning forward into asking, Who is our God? Who are you, God? And what have you said to us? And what are your, your ways toward us? Uh, please exalt Jesus in the way that we engage this book and draw our hearts to you, God. Uh, thank you for this time together that we could study it. Uh, we pray you'd make it fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen.